So this morning we're going to talk about having a vision of hope. How, do y'all do y'all know what presbyopia is? <laughs> so, okay, so uh, it, it comes out of Greek and Latin, and presbyos is the, it's the elders or the older, and uh, presbyopia is older vision. It's that phenomena that your your cornea loses flexibility, so now you can't change focus as well or as widely as you used to. So. Uh, so I'm reading an article about this in the paper, uh, in Seguin one day, and I, I'm sitting in my chair, there's a lamp and a coffee table here, and Cindy's in a chair on the other side, and I'm reading this article about presbyopia and how, how it works and everything, and, and, and I'm reading it and, and holding it over here and, and reading it out, and I get to the part, I'm reading through presbyopia, and it does this, and uh, the average age of onset is 42 years of age, and, and as I'm reading this, my wife starts laughing at me, and I'm thinking, what's well, so funny? And she's going, well, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 42. And she goes, look at how you're reading that. <laughs> oh, right? Full arm's length under the light because, yeah, that's me. I'm reading my own self-description. I needed reading glasses. I needed to get reading glasses. Some of you are there, Right? You know, it was, it, was, it was, you know, Cindy had LASIK done on her eyes back when we lived down in Seguin, and uh, they did all that, and for a long time she could see really good and read and all that kind of stuff, but now she's having to wear reading glasses again. Yeah, I'm having fun with that. So, you know, the, the, the lens makes a difference. I mean, it's, it's really important. I mean, otherwise you, you can't read stuff. So, you know, the lens through which we look at the world has, has a tremendous impact on how we see the world. Clayton Oliphant who wrote this book we're working off of, Clayton talks about when he got to that point in his life, you know, where he had to have glasses, and he went and he got a pair of reading glasses, and, and the problem was when he was leading worship, he said, if I put the reading glasses on, I could see what I was supposed to read, but then when I looked up, I couldn't see people's faces, and, he, and I didn't like that. He said, so if I took them off, you know, well, then I could see people's faces, but then I had to put them on to read, and he says it, it worked okay until I would put them down, and then I couldn't remember where I put them, and I couldn't find them in the middle of the worship service. So, so he went to the optometrist, and he says, uh, I want to get some of those bifocal contact lens, you know, the ones that one sees distance and one sees up close. And, and so they fitted him with those and everything and said, it'll take a little while for you to adjust to these. And, and he goes, okay. So the, the first week he had them, it, it went pretty good. You know, he had a little trouble once in a while, but he thought they were doing pretty good. And then as he got into the second week, uh, it, it seemed to be doing really well, and he was really happy with it. And then one day, all of a sudden, everything was blurry. And, you know, he was going through the day, and, and, and he just couldn't see well. He, he felt uncomfortable driving because he couldn't see that well. He kept running into things around the church and everything. And, and so finally he thought, there's something really wrong here. I've got an infection or something going on in my eyes. And he called up the optometrist and says, I need to come in and see you. And so she booked him an appointment. So he goes in, and he sits down in her office, and she does the thing. She looks in his eyes and everything, and she, and she says, Reverend Oliphant, in my experience, it always works better if you put the left contact lens in the left eye and the right contact lens in the right eye, right? Because <laughs> that's what he was used to. You know, the, the way we see, the, the vision we carry uh, has a huge impact on, on how we understand the world and, and what it looks like and the perspective that we can put it in. Those of you that have teenage kids, you know, at some point, Usually, uh, in those early teenage years, they'll come in, they'll make a statement, you know, you've done something, and they'll say, oh, you know, you, you, this is just the worst day of my life. You've ruined everything. And most of us as adults who have many decades more experience, um, you know, we hear that and we kind of go, oh, yeah, right, get over it. But, but you know, if you're, if you're 13, 
it really could be the worst day of your life. I mean, it really, really could be. I mean, the, the perspective is different. It's very different in what we see. We went to Thanksgiving this past fall. We went down to Port Lavaca uh, to have Thanksgiving with Forrest and Mercedes. And they decided to, to host the gathering. They would have it at their home down there. And uh, my stepfather and his wife came down from Victoria. And Forrest invited his secretary and her husband because they didn't have any family to be with. And so they came over and, and set up. And we, we did it. And, and uh, everybody brought some stuff. But, but Forrest cooked, you know, like the turkey and all that kind of thing and everything. And and we're, we're sitting down in, in there, and Mercedes made a wonderful dewberry cobbler. But we're, we're sitting down to eat and, and doing all this, and Forest Secretary Susan is just going on and on about what a wonderful holiday Thanksgiving is because she's from Britain, and this was her first Thanksgiving as an American citizen. And she was so excited. I mean, she was talking about it and telling us all this stuff and everything and just, you know, going on and on and on and on and on and on all through, all through the meal and everything. And it, it was really interesting. You know, Thanksgiving's a great holiday. We, we enjoy it. But it was interesting to see it through the lens of someone else for whom this was the first time that, that she could own that holiday as a fellow American. And she was just pumped up about it and went on with all kinds of facts and information and everything and talked about it. I mean, it was just really fascinating to see that. And I thought, my gosh, you know how we've gotten to where we just kind of do it and we take it for granted. Uh, And here's somebody for whom it's all new and how exciting and wonderful it was for her. So, you know, perspective makes a difference. We're, we're then we're leaving and we're, we're driving home after the holiday's over and we're coming back up here, Cindy and I are in the car together and Cindy turns and says, well, that was kind of weird. And I said, well, I thought it was pretty cool. I said, you know, to see, you know, somebody that's seeing this holiday. And she said, no, 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 she said, that's not what I'm talking about. She said, it was kind of weird to have Thanksgiving at one of our children's homes. <laughs> I went, yeah, I, it was kind of nice, wasn't it? But. You know, your perspective, the, the, the lens through which you see the world makes a huge difference in how you understand it. And the lens through which we see the world makes a difference in whether we see it with hope or whether we see it with despair. Let's pray. My Father, come and, and open our eyes and, and our ears to what you would say and show us today. I let your light shine into the midst of our hearts. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I read these words last week. Paul writes to the church in Rome with these interesting words. Since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And that we we boast in our sufferings. One One of the translations says we rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, and, and I think, boy, that, that's a very different thing than mo- where most of us are most of the time. We don't exactly like to rejoice in our sufferings or boast, but we'd rather just not have them, right? Uh, and, and so here he is, he's lifting this up because he sees it through a different lens than what we usually look through. I mean, if you've been around a while, you'll, you'll have all heard somebody make statements, something like this. We don't know how we can get through this struggle in our marriage. 
We've never had a time as tough as this before. Or we don't know how we're going to deal with our teenager. We've never had teenagers before. I'll pray for you. (laughs) I've never lost a job before. I've never been in this kind of financial distress. I don't know how I'm going to get through this death. I've never lost a parent or a spouse or a child. You know, so often when we're going through life and we, we hit things, especially the first time we run into them, uh, they can be overwhelming. And it's really easy for us to kind of see what's going on in that moment and, and enter into despair and instead of having that kind of hope that Paul is talking about. Instead of understanding the, the love of God in our hearts that gives us this hope that maintains us through everything, we, we, we simply settle into a place of, of darkness and a place of despair. Um, oh, Clayton's sister Mary writes, Could it be that we get so caught up in the despair of the world and our own suffering that we fail to remember that we are citizens of hope who have a reason to rejoice, a reason to hope? I think a lot of times she's right. Uh, that's what happens to us. We, we get caught up in the suffering of the present moment. And instead of, instead of you know, kind of leaning into that and seeing something more or seeing something more powerful that's behind that, we, we just lose hope and we begin to, to enter into despair. When my, uh, when my folks moved out to Goliad a number of years back, uh, they, they bought the property and, and, and built the home out there. And then, you know, being out in the middle of the country, they had to do things like, you know, put in the septic tank and drill the water well. And those of you that have drilled wells, you know, you, you pay the driller by the foot that they drill. That's how you're charged. And so uh, the guy comes out to drill the well, and, and he drills down about 30 or 40 feet and hits water. And, and, and you know, my stepfather's going, yeah, all right. And the guy's going, no, no. He says, really, he says, we can't stop here. He says, we need to get down into the real aquifer. And my stepfather's going, why? He says, well, because one, the, the water at this level is kind of brackish, it's salty, and you're not going to like that. But the other thing is, when we hit a dry spell and we hit a drought, this level will dry out, and you won't have any water. He said, so we keep, need to keep going until we hit the aquifer. And my stepfather goes, well, okay, keep going then. So he did another 140 feet into the aquifer. With every foot, my stepfather cried another tear. And just, but when he hit it, he hit it, and we had a solid well. And no matter what happened, that well produced water. It produced water when the, the well in the back that was on the windmill went dry, that one produced water. When the creek ran dry, that well produced water, and it still does. Through all kinds of weather, through all kinds of drought, that well has reliably provided water uh, to that home. You know, when we hit these rough moments, these moments of suffering, uh, that's what we're called to do, uh, kind of to dr- drill down deep, uh, reach down deep and tap into that love of God that's been placed into our hearts, that, that peace that we have with God, to drill down into that and let that sustain us. Instead of getting caught up in the suffering of the moment, to drill down into that and find that hope that sustains us. Because the suffering's temporary, but the hope, the hope goes on. And the psalmist would say, his anger's but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The reality that, that what, what we're in, that the suffering is, is temporary and what we're going to move through is, is something we're going to move through. And we may not like it, it may not be comfortable, it may not be easy. But God's grace 
is not temporary. And God's love is not temporary. And whatever we face in the moment, God's love is with us forever. And that's what allows us to hope. That's what allows us to hold on. That's what allows us to get through what's in front of us. In uh, 1998, we flooded in Seguin, and, you know, I'd seen damage from hurricanes before, but I never imagined uh, the kind of devastation that a flood could bring to an area, uh, just taking whole homes and, and totally destroying them. And, uh, and, and as we were kind of on the other side of that and the back side of that, we were beginning to think about how do we recover from this, and I was working with a number of agencies in and, and the area of recovery, and we were going through the town, we were surveying areas and looking at what the damage was and uh, kind of figuring out... Where are we going to work and what are we going to do and how do we address this? And as I went through and we were doing the inventory, I came across one of my church members in their home. Uh, their home was in a low area and had been pretty heavily damaged uh, by the flooding. And uh, they uh, were just sitting in what used to be the garage on two lawn chairs. And I came up and I said, well, how bad is it? And they said, well, it's really bad. And we don't have insurance. And we don't have the money to fix this. And I said, well, let's, let's, let's look at it and, and all. And we went through the house and looked. You know, all their clothes were ruined, uh, water in the walls, all the appliances, all that kind of stuff. And I came by the next day to see them, and they were still sitting in the garage. And I came by the next day to see them, and they were still sitting in the garage. And I realized that they'd just given up. You know, they just quit. They didn't have insurance. They didn't have money to fix it. Wasn't anything to do. They were just going to sit there. So, so as a, a disaster area, one of the things at this point was we didn't have water and we didn't have electricity we could give people. Uh, so, it, it, you know, we weren't letting a lot of people into the area yet. The sheriff was kind of keeping a lot of areas cordoned off. One of our retired pastors in the conference by the name of Don Duval uh, shows up in his motorhome. And I said, Don, we don't have any hookups. We can't do that. And he says, that's all right. He says, I've got enough stuff. I'm, I'm self-sustaining. I've got everything I need. I don't need to hook up to anything. I don't need electric. I don't need water. I'm, I'm good to go. He says, where can I help? And I said, I know exactly where to send you, Don. So I gave him their address. And he drove down there. And he parked his motorhome on the curb in front of their house and walked up and introduced himself. You know, I'm Don Duval, and, and I'm a retired pastor here. And Tom knows me and all. And he asked me to come over here. And I'm here to help you with this. And they said, okay. And they just sat there. So Don started clearing all the muck out of the house and shoveling everything out and, and tearing things out and started working. And he worked all that day, and they didn't move. And the next day, Don started, and the husband got up and began to help him partway through the day. The day after that, the wife got up and began to help the husband and, and Don as they worked on it. And over a period of, of several days there, they, they slowly kind of came out of their shell and they began to get engaged on you know, tearing out the, the wet sheetrock and all that kind of stuff you have to do. Don was with them for a little over a week. He certainly didn't come anywhere near fixing everything in their house. But the fact that he came, the fact that he was there, was a very concrete sign of God's love to him in that moment. And where before they had been totally in despair and had just given up, the fact that he came and helped them restored hope to them. And they began to rebuild their home. I mean, we, we, we need that, that vision of hope. We need to understand that when things are difficult, we, we can drill down deep into that. And in those moments when, man, we just don't feel like we can even do that, 
we need God to send somebody to us. Or maybe we need to be the ones that God sends to somebody else to give them a vision of hope. Because it makes all the difference in how you see it. It makes all the difference. When we lived in Corpus Christi, I had a gentleman that cut my yard there. We moved down there, and uh, we were in Lamar Park area, which is an older area of town. And the parsonage there is on a double lot. So it's probably at least a half acre or or maybe three quarters of an acre of property. And the house sits on there. And we drove down to look at the place when we were getting ready to move down there. And I looked at that lot and thinking about how fast grass grows in Corpus in the summer. And I told Cindy, no, I'm not cutting this. So I talked to the guy that cut my mother's yard. And and I said, would you be willing to to do my yard too? And he said, sure. So he started mowing our yard. Now, 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 Sylvester Zepeda, he had this thing about what he called volunteer trees. Uh, the, you know, you know, y'all know what a volunteer tree is, right? It's where the squirrel berries, the, the acorn or the seed or whatever, and then something sprouts without you doing anything about it. And, and, and he couldn't stand for, you know, when they came up to just mow them down. He just couldn't stand that. And so he would dig them up and he would put them in a can and pop them and, and try to find somebody to give these trees to. He just couldn't stand it. So he came to me one day, he had a couple of trees in the back of his car, and he says, uh, I dug these up out of the, one of the Baptist churches' yards in town. He says, you know, they just wanted me to mow it down, and I just couldn't stand it. I dug these up. I thought, you know, well, maybe, maybe you'd let me plant them in your yard. And I said, oh, okay, if you want to do that, that's all right. And so he planted these two little volunteer pecan trees in the front yard at, there on Delane Street. And, uh, and they began to kind of grow and everything. And, and as we were coming home from school one day, the tree's about maybe this tall, we're coming home from school one day, and I picked up Ashlyn uh, from preschool, and, and Ashlyn sees that, and she goes, what's that? And I said, well, that, that's a new tree that Mr. Zepeda brought us and, and put in our yard. She said, oh, oh, she went out there. She was all excited. And she said, Daddy, it's like a baby tree. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's what it's like. And, oh, okay, can I take care of it? Okay, if you want to take care of it, that's fine. So every day when we would come home, you know, she'd water the tree, and she'd talk to it, and she'd keep an eye on it. And everything. So she was, you know, this, it became her little project, this, this one particular tree. Uh, there was another one on the other side of the yard that she hadn't figured out was over there yet, but this one was hers. And so she was taking care of this tree. And, and then the first cool snap came to Corpus. Now, Corpus doesn't get cold snaps, it's just cool. Uh, but the first cool snap came and, and it dropped all of its leaves. And she was just so upset. She came in, she says, Daddy, Daddy somebody's taking the baby tree. And I said, no, baby, it's, it's out there in the yard. She goes, no, it's not out there anymore. And she takes me out to look at it. And she says, no, it's not. She says, it's, it's just that old dead stick. And I said, honey, that old dead stick is the baby tree. It's just lost its leaf. And she's going, no, dad. And, and you know, those of you who've raised kids, you know, that eye roll thing, you know how most kids get that when they're like 12, 13, 11, somewhere in there, right? Ashlyn had it down at three. So, you know, I'm going, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's just lost its leaf. And she kind of rolls her eyes and, and looks at me like, oh, my gosh, how dumb are you? And says, no, it's not the baby tree. It's just an old dead stick and stomps off into the house. Okay, fine. I'm not going to win that argument. No sense taking it any further. So, so, so we go through the winter and all, and, and that spring, uh, one afternoon, I'm out there changing the oil on Cindy's car in the carport. And, and all of a sudden, she's pulling on my pant leg. Daddy, Daddy, you got to come see this, Daddy. And I'm going, honey, I'm, I'm busy right now. I'm changing. I mean, uh, when I get done here, I'll come. No, you have to come right now. No, I'm in the middle of something. No, you have to come right now. Okay. So she drags me out to the yard where the 
the pecan tree is leafed out for the spring. Now, this isn't the same tree, but you get the idea with all the, the leaves and everything. It's come out. And she goes, look, the baby tree has come back. And I'm going, well, honey, that's, that's what I told you. You know, it was, it, the, it was the, the dead stick you thought was here was the tree the whole time. It's just now putting on fresh leaves. And, and I got the eye roll thing again. You know, Dad, how dumb are you? No, Dad, that was just a dead stick. This is the baby tree. And I went, ugh. And then I thought, you know, I don't think I want to argue with her about that. No, here I am. I'm looking at it. It's just it's something that happens every year. Ho-hum. You know, it's, it's routine and all that. But she's seen a miracle. Uh, she's seen resurrection. And I don't think I want to argue with her about that. Because she has eyes to see what I don't and what I've lost. You know, sometimes the, the vision we bring to stuff makes all the difference, whether it's just, you know, day-to-day stuff, or whether you see the amazing miracle of God bringing new life. It's having the eyes to see what God is doing in the midst of us and the power of what God is doing in the midst of us. So the first time we went to uh, Kenya, about eight years ago, I guess, uh, we, we were in the area looking around, and Moses Kiptugan was the manager for the area development project there, and he was showing us through things, and we were meeting all the staff. And every morning, there would be a devotion time that we would have. And one of those mornings, Moses, as he's talking with his staff, made this statement. God is using us to raise the level of hope in this community. And that just hit me. I mean, obviously, but it just hit me. He didn't say we are raising the level of hope and we are fixing this. He says God is using us, God's working through us, to raise the level of hope in this community. And when I went back this past summer, uh, it was amazing to see the change. Because the first year we went, people were just trying to stay alive. They were just trying to stay alive. But now eight years later with water, with with food, with medical care, with education, with business opportunities, uh, there's a level of hope in the community that you can feel. Now, the first time they were just staying alive, now, now they're telling us stories about, well, I did this and I did this and I started my business and now I'm training someone else to do what I do and, and, and they're passing it on. And Moses was right on target. God is working through those young men and women on the staff to raise the level of hope in that community. Just like Don did with that couple in Seguin. They're walking into a place of despair And in their love and in their compassion, the people of that community are seeing love, God's love, and hope is being restored. So sometimes the the lens through which you see things makes all the difference, and sometimes you're the lens through which someone else sees hope. And this morning over in the Connection Corner, the missions team is doing a meet and greet, and you're invited to come over there. There's a a couple of ministries that are represented that will be uh, over there in the way. And one of the things with the World Vision Group that's over there is there's an opportunity to sponsor children. Uh, There's 132 children, and that's all, that are left to sponsor in the community. 
And when those are, are done, you know, that will, that will have completed all the sponsorship for that community, uh, it, which is a pretty amazing thing, several thousand kids. Uh, and so there's 132. They have some of them out here if you want to uh, sponsor one of them if you've not done that before. But all these different ministries will be represented out there, and you can go and talk and get information uh, about how to be involved in that and, and see how it is that God might be able to use you to raise the level of hope for someone else. And what Paul wrote to us, hope doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And in all those places where the world overwhelms us and where it's so easy to fall into despair, if we can just drill down into that love and that hope, we can find a vision of hope that carries us through that. And, and in all those places where someone else has lost that, if you can go and be a touch of compassion and show them God's love, then in you, they see the hope that will sustain them. Because God's love's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, the world sometimes uh, overwhelms us. The first time we, we step into a thing of difficulty, a, a time of suffering, the times that uh, the despair that we read about and we see in the world seems to overwhelm us, and we begin to go to that dark place. And so we ask you to pour your love out even more into us and through us. Um, allow us to, to have that hope that doesn't disappoint us and that holds us up even in difficult times. Allow us to be a vision of that hope for others who are going through those difficult times. Let us be the lens through which the world sees your grace and your mercy at work. And we give you thanks that you allow us that you allow us to be part of what you were doing in the midst of this world to raise the level of hope. And even as we do that, we ask that you would take us deep, that we might know your love poured into our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.